Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 183, recorded Sunday, January 16th, 2022. It is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, COVID test anxiety and Michelin dining adventures. Coming to you from the Travel Commons studios in Chicago, Illinois. I hope everyone had a great New Year's. Haven't done any travel since the last episode, which has actually turned out to be a good thing given the, what, two weeks straight of days with over a thousand canceled flights? I, I mean, I've always tried to avoid traveling during the Christmas holidays, crowded planes, lots of not very experienced travelers, and the inevitable winter storm or two. It's just, it's never resulted in smooth travel experiences. Now, Add to that, airlines struggling to staff back up to passenger loads, and then Omicron comes ripping through their ranks. The two folks that I knew flying between Christmas and New Year's both got home a day late, which, given all of this, could have been a lot worse, like being trapped in that 27-hour mess on I-95 in Northern Virginia. That was definitely a reminder never to let yourself get below a quarter tank. Probably also makes you rethink the fly versus drive calculus, at least during the winter. Now, while I haven't been traveling, I have been travel planning, which is not unusual. January has traditionally been the big travel planning month. Pack up the Christmas decorations, figure out where you want to go this year, and then put in your time off requests. And because January is just about the worst month of the year in the upper northern hemisphere, at least, it's the coldest month of the year and the sun sets early. So actually, you need something, anything to look forward to. But COVID changed all that, of course, especially the planning timeline. We talked in prior episodes how last minute travel restrictions have made that planning timeline what the travel industry calls the booking window. It's made that booking window a lot shorter. Last year, in the January 2021 episode, I talked about having to make a last-minute pivot away from a San Diego trip that I'd booked just the month before, ended up pivoting over to Tucson, Arizona, because California was still in their post-holiday lockdown and not letting any out-of-state visitors make hotel reservations. I thought this year I'd revert back at least a little bit to the old patterns and do a bit more long-term travel planning looking at Kayak's flight search trends, where they now compare current flight search volumes to actually the pre-pandemic levels. So in this case, comparing 2021 to 2019, I seem to be an optimistic outlier because their search volumes have cratered versus two years ago. Eyeballing their trend chart, I'd say it's down, I don't know, something like around 50%. Though then switching over and looking at Google's Hotel Insights page, now, maybe I'm not so far out of the fat part of the curve. Their hotel search trends seem to be recovering, which I have to tell you kind of sort of maps into our plans. In February, we're driving down to Louisville rather than flying, giving the airlines a couple of months to unscramble their operations. And after that, then getting on planes to New York in March, Santa Fe, New Mexico in April, maybe D.C. in May. But for that February drive down I-65 across the frozen tundra of central Indiana, 
we'll definitely be packing a couple of blankets and snacks and keeping the gas tank topped off just in case. You know, news reports of that I-95 jam up talked about a good Samaritan family going car to car, passing out oranges that they were bringing back from Florida. I don't know, coming back from Louisville, I'm guessing any good Samaritan would be going car to car with a couple of bottles of bourbon and a sleeve of plastic shot glasses, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Would definitely warm you up a bit at least. Following up, last April, the Department of Homeland Security kicked the real ID can down the road again. So now we have until May 2023 before we'll need real ID compliant identification to get through a TSA checkpoint. Now, we don't have to get a real ID driver's license. Uh, A passport or a global entry card would work also. But last month in December, since I had to visit the Fifth Circle of Hell, also known as the Department of Motor Vehicles, to renew my expiring driver's license, I figured I might as well get the real ID version. And why not? In Illinois, the real and non-real ID driver's licenses cost the same. You go through the same lines. The only difference was that it took, I don't know, maybe three extra minutes for them to scan my Social Security card and the documents I used to prove my address, which, if I'd kept in mind you know, kind of the distributive property of cybersecurity, which kind of goes along the lines of any data entered into a system will eventually be hacked and then distributed on the dark web, I would have used something a bit more innocuous than my bank statement. But now I have a driver's license with a requisite gold star in the upper right corner, just in case DHS is really serious about the real ID deadline this time. In the last episode, I talked about finishing up my global entry renewal, and so with that done, last week I sent in my passport into that void that is the U.S. Passport Agency for renewal. I don't have any international travel planned right now, but I have to tell you I'm very uncomfortable to be without my passport, and I don't know why, but I am. And I have to tell you that this discomfort is only amplified by the 8 to 11 week processing time that the State Department is now quoting. It's also reminded me that it's been 10 years since my most embarrassing travel cock-up, letting my backpack with my sons and my passports get stolen from the overhead rack of the train to Brussels Airport. I told the whole story in episode 98 about what a stupid, what what I called the rookiest of rookie mistakes it was, and how it could have been worse but for the very pleasant and helpful Brussels Airport Police and U.S. Embassy staff. And also that my son and I then got a couple of extra days in Belgium drinking beer. But I did learn the lesson. I've kept my passport on my person when traveling ever since. You know, it's funny sometimes how travel can prepare you for things back home. Back in episode 180, talking about our travels through Italy, I walked through what were back then the most stringent vaccine passport requirements around. You needed to show an EU green pass on your phone or for us, our CDC vaccination cards to get into restaurants, 
bars, airports, train stations. And so when Chicago started doing the same thing on January 1st, well, we were ready. No big deal. Actually, in some ways, Chicago is easier than Italy. Showing a picture of my CDC card is quicker than waiting for someone to scan a QR code. But here, and in New York City and Washington, D.C., there's an extra added step that there wasn't in Italy, having to show a picture ID that matches to the vaccination card. I mean, you know, if I hadn't had to send my passport in, maybe I'd just do what I did in Italy, carry my CDC card in my passport, then I could pull them both out, picture ID and CDC card, hopefully in one suave and graceful move, and, you know, then be done with it. Back in the November episode, I said that I'd already gotten status rollovers from Marriott, Hilton, and IHG. The IHG one being kind of interesting because I don't have any status on IHG, so I don't know exactly what they rolled over. But anyhow, all those letters extended my current level in their frequent sleeper programs for the third time now. They expire in February or March of 2023. And I figured that was the end of it. So when I received a note from Southwest in mid-December with the subject line, surprise, a status extended. Yeah, it was pretty accurate. I was very surprised. I hadn't expected any airlines to extend status. They all seemed instead to be lowering their qualification clip levels. So, hey, thanks to Southwest. I'll be using this uh, flight status on my flights to LaGuardia and to Albuquerque. Also, because I still have some 2020 pandemic cancellation credits that are about to hit their disappearing two-year birthday. Hey, Southwest, any uh, any chance you can extend that expiration date, too? And just to spin the propeller on the top of my travel tech beanie hat for just a sec, over the past couple of trips, I've noticed that my briefcase, my messenger bag, has finally passed a tipping point. I now have more electronic devices needing the newer USB-C cord than the original USB-A cord. I, I told you this was going to be a propeller spin. The USB-C cord invasion started with the iPhone 11 Pro. It was another cord to carry, but actually occasionally it came in handy, like when Hertz gave me a birthday upgrade a few years back to a Mercedes A220, that Mercedes only had the smaller USB-C plugs in it. But then the briefcase invasion picked up speed with each upgrade. First, it was my new Bose headphones. Then when I upgraded my battery pack, my power bank. Then again, when I got my MacBook Air. And then again, squared when I got a pair of cheap anchor earbuds last Amazon Prime Day, which led me finally to replacing my dual USB-A power adapter for one with two USB-C plugs and one USB-A for my old Samsung tablet that just will not die. But I still have to carry an old iPhone USB-A cord for those times when all that's left on the Hertz lot is that three-year-old Chevy Malibu. And hey, if you have any travel stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along. Comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at TravelCommons.com. You can send a Twitter message to M. Peacock, post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram account at Travel Commons. Or as always, you can post your comments on the website at TravelCommons.com. The first topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is COVID test anxiety. 
friend of mine said he wanted to get together this month. Sure, I said, but if we can't, we'll be together for a weekend in February in Louisville at a wedding. Uh, no, he said, I'm, uh, I'm not going. Why, why not? I'm going to isolate, kind of, I don't know, kind of like a soft quarantine in February. I'm not going to go outside except to walk the dog. I don't want to screw up my upcoming trip to Egypt. It's, it's non-refundable. So I'll be out a lot of money if I test positive for COVID before leaving and then can't go. And then last month, in early December, right about when everyone was tightening travel restrictions in what turned out to be, let's face it, a futile attempt to keep Omicron out of their country, another friend of mine canceled a long-planned trip to Scotland. I just don't want to get trapped, you know, trapped away from home, he said. COVID test anxiety. Uh, honestly, I've had it. I've talked about it, especially around test on arrival rules. The week before our flight to London in November, I got a text from my doctor group, time to get your COVID booster. I clicked through to the appointment website, started looking at slots, but then I stopped. I was going to have to take a COVID test on our second day in London. What if that spike of antibodies from the booster lingers long enough to turn that test positive? Yeah, that's that was a bad Bad vision. So I clicked onto the next page of the website and booked my booster for December after we got back home. And as I mentioned in the last episode, we tested negative on our test in London and then went about our vacation. But as we got close to our return date, that anxiety crept back in. This was before the U.S. tightened their testing window, so we took our Abbott tests two days before departure, both to give us some wiggle room uh, and some time to retest if one of them came up positive, but also to calm those worries, to calm that anxiety. I mean, I remember on that trip talking to an American guy in the elevator of our hotel in London. He had an Abbott rapid test sticking out of his briefcase. Get ready to head home, I asked. No, he said, I just test myself every two days. I kind of laughed at that at the time, thinking, I don't know, that's that's a bit of an over-rotation. But thinking back on that now, maybe you had it right. Maybe test yourself every couple of days to relieve that uncertainty rather than waiting for the night before departure. But even that might not be enough. I tweeted out an article from the UK Times newspaper written by a guy who visited Thailand last month. The article starts, on December 19th, after a week of nearly hourly negative lateral flow and PCR tests, I flew to Thailand. The next sentence, and you, you know where this is going. So the next sentence, on December 20th, I stepped off the plane, took another PCR, and headed to my hotel. The next morning, I received a text informing me I had tested positive. And then he goes on to tell the story of his 10 days of solo isolation in a Thai hospital. He did everything right, and it still went horribly wrong. One big anxiety driver is the cost for those extra days quarantined in a hotel somewhere. Though this should be the kind of risk that trip insurance is created to help you manage. So I rang up Michael Giusti, a senior writer at insurancequotes.com. He was on with us in episode 176 last March talking about travel insurance one year after the pandemic lockdowns. So anyhow, I rung up Michael to ask him about this. What happens if you test positive given the U.S.'s new one-day testing window? 
So from from a travel insurance policy or perspective, that scenario you just said is actually almost the better scenario because that's what travel insurance is built for. So you come up with positive test that kicks in the policy language. Now they can hit their contingency plans, whether that's paying you per day for the the extended trip or uh, finding alternative ways home. What scares me is the no man's land of you can't find the test. And so a lot of these policies have language that exclude government mandates. And so if you just can't find a test and now can't get in, not because you're sick, uh, because being sick would trigger the policy, but because the government mandate has got you in in limbo, that's the scary part. And that's really going to come down policy to policy to see how they're going to handle it. Is that standard travel insurance or is there something special you need to look for? When you're buying your policy, you do need to pay attention, but the kind of the three buckets you'd want to make sure that are included, one is the cancellation, you know, that's going to protect you if you get sick before the trip. One is the health, and that's going to, you know, pay for uh, care while you're abroad or outside of your normal healthcare network, but the other is the interruption, and that's the piece that I was just talking about, the interruption policy. That's going to be standard in their uh, baseline, we'll call it the silver plan, you know, not the platinum, not the bronze, that standard baseline plan and should have all three of those buckets, but know what you're buying because I was reading through some policies over the weekend and there were definitely some that were peeling one or the other buckets out to save some cost. So, uh, you know, that's great if, if you want to take that risk, but just, you know, just do it in, in, with an open, open eyes knowing what you're doing. Insurance is there to protect you from unknown risks, unknowable risks. All of these policies, when you start reading the language, they're quick to point out COVID-19 became a global pandemic in January of 2020. So they want you to know this is a known risk. And then that's that kind of sets the table for with this being known, how are you going to protect yourself? Some of them are built into the standard policies, but some require that COVID writer or some different policy language, which most of them are offering. But you can't just assume it's going to be wrapped into standard coverage. You need to be asking the COVID question. Well, thanks to Michael Giusti for joining us. Interesting point he makes about test access being a gray area for coverage. As I mentioned earlier, Irene and I brought our own Abbott tests with us to Italy and to the UK, but really more for convenience than concern about availability. I wrote up a detailed how-to blog post on ordering and using the Abbott Binax Now testing kit. It's on the Travel Commons website in case you want to sidestep Michael's new addition to COVID test anxiety. The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is Michelin Dining Adventures. So last month, I picked up on the buzz around a blogger's brutal review of a one-star Michelin restaurant in Italy. It initially caught my eye because Irene and I like to hit a Michelin star or two when we're traveling. Indeed, a one-star place called Behind, as in it's an open kitchen, so there's nothing to hide behind, uh, got us figuring out how to get from central London to Hackney, a neighborhood we would have had no reason to explore otherwise. It was a great lunch, a great experience talking to the chef, and it's going to be on my best of 2021 restaurant list, which is on my to-do list to update right after I finish this podcast. But on the other side, 
we've had some meals that weren't great. Like, unfortunately, our 25th anniversary dinner at a three-star place in Florence or the two-star place in Spain that we loved, absolutely loved, until the next morning when we both came down with food poisoning. But on balance, we've had more really good meals than bad. And they've often taken us out of the travel bubbles to parts of cities we wouldn't normally go. Kind of like my microbrewery taproom tours, only a lot more expensive. So when I saw the title, We Eat at the Worst Michelin-Starred Restaurant Ever, it got my attention. First, what restaurant is it? So we can avoid it. And the second, what made it the worst ever? Because, look, that's a big claim. But then I see the full title with the restaurant Bros in Lecce, Italy. We're not going to be able to skip it because we ate there in mid-October, the night after our Puglia bike tour ended. I read through the reviews and looked closely at the pictures. A couple of the courses looked familiar, but others, like the now famous, infamous gray foam oozing out of a plaster replica of the chef's mouth, was, thankfully, not on our menu. I have to say that when Irene first brought it up, I was on the fence about eating at Bro's. The reviews I could find were very mixed, and as with most all Michelin places, it wasn't a cheap ticket. After a bit of hemming and hawing, we decided to go. But with the understanding, at least I had the understanding, that it could be a high-variance meal with some courses that just might not work out at all. I think the oyster with rancid fat was that dish for Irene. I didn't love it, but at least it didn't trigger a gag reflex like it did for Irene. That's certainly not what you hope for, and I'd guess that's probably not what the chef was hoping for either. But it was only that dish. The rest was fine. Like I said, we went to Bro's eyes wide open, expecting an edgy experimental food experience and definitely not a standard three-course fine-dining Italian meal. Uh, and that's pretty much what we got. We walked out thinking, well, that was interesting. Not bad. And certainly not the worst one-star meal I've ever had. But, you know, though probably it was in the bottom quartile. And as you might guess, bros won't make it on that best of 2021 list update. So why didn't this blogger, a James Beard award-winning writer come in with kind of a similar set of expectations. I mean, who knows, though we do know that outrage porn drives clicks, which for her also drove some high-profile TV interviews, which probably helped move a couple copies of her book. And since no publicity is bad publicity, I'm guessing that it was a net positive for the restaurant also. But why did we pay what was a lot of money for a meal that I thought might be a complete train wreck? I mean, I walked past a lot of places in Lecce that I know would have put a good meal down in front of us for a lot less money. You know, at some point, it becomes less about food and a bit more about the experience, less about stomach, more about brain. It reminded me of something Josh Glenn said in the last episode when we were talking with him about the language of adventure. I mean, an adventure is, and that word comes from the Latin meaning to arrive unexpectedly. That's actually a really important sort of philosophical piece for me as I was going through this. The idea that you can have a trip as not an adventure if nothing unexpected happens. And if you don't take enough risks to allow things unexpected to happen, the word chance comes from the Latin cadencia, meaning falling. 
So when we think about how we use the words of like, let the chips fall where they may, or something befalls you, right? This idea of having our feet off the ground, falling through space, we can't grasp anything. You know, what do you do with that? If you're someone who likes in some kind of existential way, that feeling of falling, then you're an adventurer. You know, you're going to get more out of your travel experiences than someone who wants everything to be go exactly the same way every time and you know, never have any hiccups. So I always say to Irene, look, if every meal we've had is a great one, then we're not trying enough weird places. I mean, after food poisoning has befallen you a couple of times, I mean, how bad can a little rancid fat be? Okay, that's it. That's the Inner Travel Commons podcast number 183. I hope you all enjoyed the show. I hope you decide to stay subscribed. As always, you can find us and listen to us on all the major podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. You can also ask Siri, Alexa, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. Check out the show notes on travelcommons.com for a transcript and links. You can also click on the link in the episode description in your podcast. And if you've got a couple of minutes, I'd really appreciate it if you left a review of Travel Commons on the site that you listen to it on. And if you're not yet subscribed, hit the website at travelcommons.com. There's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of each page, big red subscribe button in the middle. Also, at the bottom of each page, you can find links to all the Travel Commons socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you've got a story, thought, comment, gripe, the voice of the traveler, send it along. Text or audio file, comment, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S, at travelcommons.com, and Peacock on Twitter. Write them on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram, or post them on the website at travelcommons.com. Thanks to everyone who has taken the time to send in emails, tweets, and post comments on the website. I really do appreciate it. And until we talk again, stay safe, and thanks for stopping by the Travel Commons. Bye now. Thank you.